Hello, welcome to the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare's November webinar. So grateful for everyone that is joining us today. Before we get to our distinguished guest speaker today, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Alliance. As some of you might know, the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare is a coalition of about 90 different organizations working on compassionate alternatives to the legalization of assisted suicide. We have lots of great members of our coalition spanning the political spectrum and spanning many different other areas of our community, including veterans, people with disabilities, and those uh, in the mental health community. Wanted to make a specific pitch uh, before we get started for anyone who's on our call today on our webinar to consider joining as a Alliance partner. You can do that as an individual or an organization or as a faith community, there's no cost. And it's a great way to get looped into all of the advocacy work that we're doing on behalf of ethical care here in Minnesota. And you get looped into great content like we have today. So let's get to our featured speaker. We're thrilled to have uh, today Dr. Uh, Charles uh, Comacy, uh, Charlie Comacy, who will be discussing his new book, Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality. There is no more important value than fundamental human equality. And yet, despite large percentages of people affirming the value, the resources available to explain and defend the basis for such equality are few and far between. Based on his newest book, uh, Charlie will provide a thoughtful defense of human dignity. He is a noted bioethicist and will show how the influence of secularized medicine the problem of ableism and the growing movement to legalize assisted suicide is undermining fundamental human equality, especially for older adults, vulnerable communities, and people with disabilities. Charlie is associate professor of theology at Fordham University, where he has taught since finishing his PhD at University of Notre Dame in 2008. His books include Too Expensive to Treat, Peter Singer and Christian Ethics, and Throwaway Culture. His articles have appeared in the American Journal of Bioethics, Journal of Medicine and Philosophy, Los Angeles Times, New York Daily News, and America Magazine. Our format today will be a series of questions and answers from Charlie. I'll be posing some questions, but I'm also looking to our webinar guests also to pose questions. So feel free to use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen, and you can put questions in anytime, and we will certainly entertain those questions uh, to Charlie. Our plan here is to go to about 1230 or 1240 or so, so we have uh, lots of time over the lunch hour, but not too long, so you can get back to your workday and everything else that you're doing. So with that, uh, welcome, Charlie. Grateful to have you here. Hi, Lynn. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. And thank you for your book. Your book is really, I think, much needed. I think it has a lot of great arguments in it um, on bioethics and specifically on our throwaway culture and specifically also on the problem of assisted suicide. So before we get to some of those specific issues, I thought first our audience would be very interested in hearing um, your intention for writing the book and describe what fundamental human equality is. 
you do note in your book that the concept is a bulwark against utilitarian approaches that target the most vulnerable among us and discard them in the name of producing better consequences for others. I thought that was a really remarkable statement and maybe a good starting point to discuss the framework for your book. Yeah, so I argue in the book that fundamental human equality means or refers to the fact that we share a common nature um, and that nature doesn't depend on what we're able to do, right? It depends on the kind of creature or creatures we are. And we share a common human nature. We're commonly human creatures, homo sapiens uh, together. That's, what's make, that's what makes us equal. And I would go further as a theologian and say that what makes us dignified um, is the fact that that nature reflects the image and likeness of God. What I noticed um, happening for years now as a bioethicist is that at the same time that the discipline became more secular, more and more human populations were falling out of the circle of equality. Um, and I go in some detail uh, in the book about, um, about who they are. And so what I, what, my reason for writing the book, I guess, was to kind of sound the alarm about this and say, you know, we are losing the basis for calling each other equal and more and more populations are falling out of the circle of protection that equality gives us both morally and legally. And uh, it's time to really sound the alarm and, and make, make ourselves aware of this and see what we're, what we might do to, to try to stem the tide. Thank you for that. I think that also flows into another question that we have um, that you note in the introduction in your book, you say, we must reclaim a vision that considers the most vulnerable human beings as the moral and legal equals of those who have power over them. Again, I think a remarkable statement, and I was hoping you could say more about the implications for that, especially for ableism in healthcare. We have a lot of members in our coalition who are from the disability community, and they see legalization of assisted suicide as a real clear and present danger to their own lives and their own problems of discrimination that they currently face and what they would see as legalization of assisted suicide exacerbating those issues. Yeah, so ableism is at the heart, I think, of the movement away from fundamental human equality, where you say it doesn't matter, you know, where your common nature, that you have the same common nature as me. What matters is what you're able to do again, the traits that you exhibit, like rationality, self-awareness, productivity, those sorts of things, autonomy. But um, it's interesting, you know, and scary in light of um, well, at least what I'm trying to call to mind and in the book and what you guys are doing with this group, that so many of those that hold power over life and death and healthcare, especially, have ableist views about what kind of lives are worth living and what kind of lives are not worth living. This has come out again and again in study after study, I imagine. I don't need to tell your audience about it. They're probably well aware that, for instance, physicians tend to underrate the quality of life of their patients compared to how patients value their own lives in their own, in their own words. It's so interesting, especially with Down syndrome. Down syndrome, uh, our Down syndrome friends uh, think their lives are more happy than ours, you know, if, if they're asked to rate their lives on a, on a 10 point scale. And this, this happens again and again. And so when you have ableism kind of at the, you know, in the halls of power, so to speak, when it comes to medicine. And if medicine, medicine as it does, holds power over life and death, you kind of just do the math on this, right? That's part of what's going on here is that a utilitarian calculation is made saying, well, you know, 
I might not want to live a life like yours and therefore I'm going to rate your life lower. And therefore maybe depending on how we're what, in what context we're talking about, I might describe your life to your parents a certain way. I might describe your life to your family members a certain way. I might show code or slow code um, if, um, your treatment in a way that um, doesn't value your life or any number of things um, that, that would um, disvalue the lives of the most vulnerable. I think that utilitarian calculation you mentioned is also manifest in uh, something called qualities, the quality adjusted life years, which several, uh, many in fact, members of our coalition have concerns about. And I don't know if you have done work on that, but uh, that certainly is another health insurance and health care uh, issue that many have concerns about. Very much so. Um, in the chapter on Alfie Evans, which is a little British boy, um, that some of you may remember the story about him and the UK not allowing his parents to take him elsewhere for treatment and care. Um, I make the argument that because the UK so closely has such a close relationship with qualities in their own healthcare system that there's almost a quality mentality that just kind of permeates the culture now. And that's where I think we need to push back, especially as US Americans, right? To say, we are not going to allow a quality mentality to be the one that, in, that infects our medical system, though the, the seeds of it are already there, unfortunately. So I, that's one reason I'm so glad groups like yours exist. Thank you for that. We're getting some great questions in the Q&A. So everyone on the webinar, feel free to add them. You can go to the bottom of your screen and to the Q&A function and just enter in your question. Our first question uh, from our Q&A is, what is the best refutation you know of for the popular libertarian arguments for assisted suicide? And by that, I'm, I think the questioner means the autonomy argument, which seems to reign supreme on that side. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm sure many of those on this call are aware of these kind of counter arguments, but it's still maybe helpful to go through them. Um, you know, autonomy, uh, again, is this kind of ableist notion that what you can do, right, what you can do yourself um, is what makes your life valuable. The fact that you're independent, an independent chooser, um, that you can make your own decisions, um, without interference from, or from others or even help from others, right? I mean, as soon as you need help from others, you've kind of lost your autonomy. Um, and so what we, what we um, kind of say, um, either explicitly or implicitly when we, when we talk about autonomy, is that those that don't have autonomy don't have the same kind of value. And, uh, and that if you're not autonomous, you don't have the same value of life as somebody who, who is autonomous. And then even if we want to narrow it to your choice being autonomous, which is not so easy to do, um, people at the end of life and, and in, in, who are suffering in various ways and who don't feel supported by the surrounding culture um, uh, don't feel autonomous for reasons that we can change, right? So we can, we can, um, we can help people feel as if their lives are a value. I take my, some of my bioethics students at Fordham to Calvary Hospice Center in the Bronx when we do um, when we do uh, classes that allow for that. And one of the things that the director always tells my students is we've never had anyone here ever request assisted suicide, even though they don't feel autonomous, even though they could autonomously choose to go to a different state or even different country. Um, it's because they take care of them. It's because they value them. It's because they don't consider that um, uh, them less than equal because of their lack of autonomy and their, their reliance on others. 
And so it's, it's actually a very pernicious concept, the idea that, uh, you know, you need autonomy or autonomy is the key um, issue here. The, the, the key issue here is how are we going to support and suffer with, show true compassion for our brothers and sisters and, and, and insist that there are equals as they come to the end of their lives. That's, that's what I think we need to be focused on far more often. I think too, there can be an argument made that maybe it's about physician autonomy because it's the physician who ultimately decides if a patient is eligible uh, or they're going to sign off, the physician's going to sign off on the life-killing drugs. And so I think where physician-assisted suicide becomes legal, we see that standard of care radically change. The physician is no longer the healer, but now in some ways is a bit of an adversary. And so I think what you just said reaffirms that. And it fundamentally changed what medicine is, right? It, if medicine is care, um, the idea that violence can never be care, um, just told, I mean, we, we, it, it's just one step closer to what I call with my students Burger King medicine, where you just get it your way. Remember that old slogan for Burger King a few years ago? It's where you get it your way. Medicine is not where you get it your way. It's not this just transaction in the market. It's a it's a practice, it's a profession that has its own internal ends and, and goals and values and goods. And if we say that violence can be care, we've totally upended those goods. We have a question about Dr. Solmosi's discussion of inherent and attributed dignity. Can, uh, we can never lose our dignity because it's inherent. Can you comment on that uh, concept? Sure. Um... So uh, Dr. Solmacy is one of my favorite bioethicists. He's, uh, he's just brilliant. Um, and he's also an internist physician. And he used to be a Franciscan friar. He suddenly left that a few years ago and is now married. But um, he's, if you don't know his work, I really commend him to you. And, and he has this great article where he, because I mean, I'm, obviously those of you who, are, who know the issue of physician-assisted suicide well know how the term dignity gets thrown around in various ways and it's so confused. And you can use the term to really defend assisted suicide by calling it death with dignity, right? Or you can use it to really um, curtail it or, or, or resist it by saying that human dignity requires that we not kill, but rather care. Um, Dr. Sulmacy really um, helpfully articulates three different kinds of dignity, actually. Um, the first is intrinsic dignity, which is the kind that I was discussing in the opening to our, um, to our remarks here by talking about the kind that uh, we have based on the kinds of creatures we are, right? And it's infused with God's grace by um, that, that, uh, that nature reflecting God's image and likeness. And so that can never change. We will always remain the same kind of creatures we are, and that that kind of nature will always reflect the image and likeness of God, no matter what. Attributed dignity is the third kind, but the middle version is something he calls inflorescent dignity, which is the kind of dignity we have in kind of being fully alive, fully ourselves. You know, there is a sense in which you know being sick um, isn't our most flourishing selves, right? I think we should acknowledge that. That's how we recognize be what it is to be sick or to have. Um, you know, a disease or something like that. And that's one of the great things that healthcare providers is allow people to be more flourishing, more of themselves. And the, the third kind is the kind that I think often um, is what we're talking about, though, when it comes to uh, debates over assisted suicide is the kind of dignity that our culture attributes to us or not, or the, or, or, or the culture 
um, you know, assigns to us in some way. And that, that does come from this idea that, you know, it is what you can do that ultimately matters, right? If you're productive member of society, right? Or if you're autonomous, or if you're, um, you know, those kinds of things. And so that's where I think we need to be very precise with our language. And maybe even dignity, um, as, as much as I love the word, we should really try to find other words in some cases, so we can more articulately and more precisely um, say what it is we're actually talking about. Speaking of dignity and transcendent values, can those who hold different theological understandings of the good, or perhaps none at all, can we coalesce around a shared version, a shared vision rather, of the good that reasserts fundamental human dignity? I think so. Um, you know, I've done a lot of um, dialogical work with people from outside um, the Christian faith and even those with no faith. And, um, and they do hold views that are often similar, um, especially, and again, this folks in this call are probably well aware of this. Um, there are lots of folks in the disability rights uh, groups and, and activists um, who don't share uh, my theological beliefs who nevertheless have a very similar uh, point of view. Now, I think it's a, you know, if we were in a semester long seminar together, we could discuss like what grounds those beliefs and where do they come from? And, um, you know, what's the story we tell to undergird um, our, our belief in those things. But for purposes of just, um, you know, uh, connecting to resist uh, physician assisted killing and violence in healthcare, those are not as important things to discuss. What is important is that we ultimately share the final conclusion um, that we are, in fact, all equal, and that our equality comes from sharing a common human nature. Going back to physician autonomy, can you say more about the controls imposed on physicians who work for managed care or large healthcare systems? Do they generally have the liberty to prescribe as they deem best? And hasn't this been troubling during the pandemic? Yeah, so I'm only... Um, you know, I'm not a clinician, even though I have a number of clinician friends and pay very close attention to clinical ethics and the clinical community and sit on ethics committees and whatnot. But this is definitely a concern. And, um, you know, physician autonomy, you know, if, if we can, if we just talk about autonomy, and where it's just this clash between patient and physician autonomy, it's not clear how that works, how that ultimately resolves itself. So that's why I think going back again to our vision of what medicine is, is so important. Um, neither the, the physician nor the patient, it seems to me, should just be able to decide what medicine is based on a kind of, you know, will to power or something like that. There needs to be a kind of common understanding that we have of medicine that doesn't allow for violence. And so, I mean, cause I can imagine, and probably you can imagine lots of people on this call could imagine a future in which physicians say, you know what, I think violence is okay. Um, I can make money using violence. I, my own personal view is this is kind of compassionate violence or something, but then we've lost what medicine is and what the practice is. And the practice is whatever anybody happens to decide that it is. And so, I mean, maybe this is my bias as, as a theologian and an academic, but I wanna do the spade work of trying to say, well, what is this thing we're all doing together and come to a common understanding of what it is. And maybe we can see that in some of the debates that the American Medical Association has had about whether we're to, you know, to include this as part in part of its mission statement, or, or I'm not actually sure what kind of statement it is, but in a statement of, 
of principles about what the AMA stands for, because they get it. They understand that if, if, if this goes in in a certain way, this fundamentally changed medicine, or at least a lot of them get it. And so that's where I really think we should put our focus on, not just on empowering any random physician or any random patient to just decide what medicine is and what it is not. Speaking more about the world of healthcare and physicians, we have a question about uh, from a practicing physician who's interested in learning more about how to be comfortable using secular language, kind of like you, you, you've been describing a little bit in current cultural terms, but having concepts that are connected to a theological foundation. So in other words, how do you bridge that gap uh, in a healthcare setting? Yeah, well, uh, it's super, super complicated and, um, and not easy and uh, fraught. And that's one reason I wrote my book is because I really wanted to try to dive into some of that complexity and fraughtness um, but more and more, and I was just at a conference at, at Notre Dame this, um, this past week with, and I just went to this amazing panel with a number of uh, folks talking about this precise question. And the consensus is that we really do need to be able to speak theologically in the clinic and that we used to for many, many decades have no problem with that. And in fact, there's really, really important data to show. And I show this in my book and cite the research in my book to show that one of the reasons that the trust in modern medicine has gone down is because uh, a lot of people have who are theologically oriented can't find themselves anywhere um, in, a, in their medical team, in the, in the system in which they're in, in the institution in which they're in. And as a result, there's been a lack of trust. And there's mul multiple reasons for lack of trust. I mean, big institutions are all untrustworthy in many ways these days. But there, there's a particular um, important slight of evidence to show that as medicine secularized, trust also declined. And so it's tricky. You don't want to just come in as like, you know, like I'm here to, to, make, uh, to make Christians or something or, or make Muslims or Jews or Buddhists. But there is something to be said, I think, for not just totally punting on the radical, um, you know, secularization or even, you know, anti-religious or irreligious uh, point of view that seems to dominate in certain circumstances, especially as we see medicine, not just as this technical enterprise in which we have, you know, organic plumbers and carpenters, but instead, if we have carers for persons, whole persons in the fullness of who they are, it becomes even, and which is so important at the end of life, especially important at the end of life. Uh, you know, we really do ourselves a disservice if we limit ourselves, if we limit the goods to which we can appeal to, 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 to care for the whole person. And so, again, finding the balance between being, you know, a kind of, you know, evangelist for your religion, which is not appropriate, but also not just, you know, completely translating the goods you believe in out of your language when trying to care for whole persons, again, especially at the end of life. It's tricky. It's fraught. Um, but maybe I can cheat and say, read my book, because I try to go to that a little bit in the book in, in ways you might find helpful. Your book does a very nice job of that. And turning again to your book, and one of the specific cases that you discuss in great detail, which I think our audience would find illuminating, can you talk more about the case of, and I hope I pronounced the name right, Jahi McMath, um, and the issue of um, how, what you talked about earlier about how physicians consistently rate the quality of life of their disabled patients worse than patients themselves. And obviously this impacts assisted suicide as well, but maybe discuss the details of her case to put a personal 
um, angle on this and how we can frame how we talk about solutions that are ethical in the healthcare system in a better way. Yeah, thank you for asking about that. That was the first case I led with because it's, I mean, and I don't know if you or your, the folks on the call agree with this or not, but if you read the book, hopefully I can make a case for it. I really think that brain death was in, in some ways where we started going wrong here. So I'll, I'll even call it so-called brain death. So the case of Jahai McMath was one in which this 12 year old girl, I think was having some kind of dental surgical procedure that went wrong. Um, and she had a massive um, catastrophic uh, neurological event, which destroyed much of her brain and was called brain dead by the state of California, by her medical team. And her family did not agree that she was dead. Um, They're very, uh, very strong Christian African-American family. Um, and they pushed back um, against the idea that she was dead very strongly, even though there really wasn't anywhere to push in, in the state of California, which has the brain death standard like all 50 states do. And, uh, and, and as a result of this, and by the way, you know, it was an, an irony of ironies or at least something that is puzzling if one believes in brain death. Um, she got her death certificate from the state of California. And then not long after that, she had her first period. She reached puberty. So what does it mean to say that someone has died when they get their first period after they've died? Or in other cases, we've seen those who are brain dead gestate children or fight off infections, um, have their body react to trauma by releasing adrenaline and fight, you know, all sorts of things that dead people don't do. Um, but anyway, to move the story along, uh, her parents fought and they were able to fly her to New Jersey, my state where I live, where there's at least a religious exemption. Orthodox Jews in New, Jer New York and New Jersey have fought here for many years to keep a religious exemption because they don't believe in the brain dust standard either, or many of them. And they were able to care for her for another uh, five years. But what I found so amazing um, in, in light of what we've been talking about is that her medical team in California were just so utterly dismissive of the idea that Jahai's life is worth, worth, worth anything at all. In fact, um, in response to um, her family's advocate advocacy for her, the head of pediatrics at UC San Francisco, where she was staying, the hospital there, you know, said, what is it you guys don't understand and pounded his fist on the table and said, she's dead, dead, dead. And that kind of dismissiveness, that kind of arrogance, that kind of um, uh, attitude towards uh, disabled lives, um, I think is well, we talked about earlier, permeates the medical field in, in especially in, in those that hold power within the medical field. But again, I think there was something really fundamental about that shift where we're able to say this obviously living human body in front of us, though obviously um, disabled and in need of help, um, uh, is no longer one of us, right? We were able to say a, a body that reaches its, um, uh, that can gestate a child, a body that can fight off infections, a body that can reach puberty um, is somehow dead was where we shifted from it's your common human nature that matters to no, no, it's what you can actually do that matters. And though that may that that's like at the edge of, of this discussion, I really think that's where we went wrong. And, and my book tells a story about going from cases like Jahai's to then going to dementia and say, saying, well, those are also living human beings, right? Who aren't rational or self-aware if they have late stage dementia, or at least certainly not like we are. They aren't autonomous. They aren't productive members of society. And so the key move, I think, is to reclaim this idea that, no, it's being a common human creature. It's, it's being a fellow living member of Homo sapiens that matters. 
It's not even having a functioning human brain that matters. We're not one organ. We are bodies. We are creatures. We are organisms. And we were, we were that kind of creature even before we had a brain. And we're that kind of creature if we have a massive um, neurological event that, that devastates the brain. What matters, again, is common humanity. To that point and the role that uh, Jaha's family played in that case, we have a great question about the role of the family here in the United States, where unlike maybe other countries, we don't have multi-generational families necessarily living together. And in some cases, we've outsourced that care, especially for our elders or those with vulnerabilities. And obviously there are, that has merit and there, there are times when that's necessary, but can you maybe talk more about the role of families and how we can support families to support their elders in the home so that assisted suicide where it's been legal has essentially been turned into a duty to die. So we've sort of atomized the family and then legalized assisted suicide. And then there's this responsibility then to end your life, tacit, although it may be. So please uh, speak a little bit about that because I know that's been part of some of your, your work as well. Yeah, you used a key word there, um, atomized. I think it's our kind of, it's, so it's not enough to say that our dignity is is in the atomized, you know, individual homo sapiens. We're essentially relational creatures. You know, whether we're talking theologically from this perspective of the Trinity or we're talking evolutionarily from the standpoint of us needing each other in various ways, requiring each other in various ways. Um, you know, we are not atomized creatures, but our, but the, the kind of cultural anthropology we have, the cultural vision of the human person, especially in the United States, imagines that we are, and therefore considers these duties or obligations that we might have to each other as external burdens, as if somehow taking care of your parents in their age is this external burden that's heaped upon you rather than something that's just what, just what it means to live a certain kind of life in relationship with others, right? Uh, one of my favorite articles, uh, bioethics articles of all time was by Gilbert Mylander in First Things, which he titled, I Want to Burden My Loved Ones, in which he goes through his own experience with his children where they were a quote, burden on him from this atomized perspective of what human dignity is. But it was actually not a burden. It was a, it was difficult at times, but it was a joy, and it was something you would, of course, expect being a parent to take care of your children. But then somehow that disappears when we think about the other end of life and um, and children's duties there. And so, really, it does come to not just the nuclear family, but the extended family and and our commitments to live close to each other and to be in solidarity with each other and not just push people off to a kind of warehouse of death to die alone, but to care for others in the midst of our communities and our families um, with, again, true compassion, true suffering with at the end of life. Um, and that would solve so many of these problems because, um, as you no doubt know, um, the top five reasons for why folks request assisted suicide in Oregon, which has had assisted suicide the longest of any state in the union, none of them involve physical pain and suffering. Most of them are connected to these kinds of uh, relationship questions, including this feeling that one has lost their autonomy or is a burden on others. And here's the, maybe I'll finish with this. You know, we really do need to, to think hard about what it, what it is we tell our children even or other family members when they say, oh, go do your own thing. You know, I'll get assisted care. Or I'll get this. I don't want to be a burden on you. Like, what are we saying when we say something like that? We are is implicitly saying it's a, an implicit cave to this atomized view of the self, right? That 
you know, the true version of human flourishing is one where you're kind of isolated and autonomous and by yourself. And if I require something of you or could use something from you, that is a de facto burden on you rather than a kind of opportunity, in fact, to live out what it means to be in community and in relationships with others. Yeah, and I think too, and I hear this especially from those uh, in the disability community, there's a tendency to medicalize uh, people who are vulnerable uh, at the end of life or who encounter a terminal disease earlier in life, and that somehow diminishes their their human, um, their, the nature of them as human beings. So I think you, you really said that very well. Um, we have time for about two more questions. Uh, please do feel free to use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. We're getting just great questions today. Charlie, uh, thank you so much so far. And we're gonna, I think, have two more questions here. Uh, we have a great question going back to the autonomy discussion um, that uh, says that there's a challenge in clinical ethics in that uh, secular autonomy-based standards are often seen as quote-unquote neutral, while theological, religious, or philosophically informed standards are dismissed as quote-unquote imposing your views on patients. You've talked about this already a little bit, but do you want to uh, maybe in a nutshell, again, say how how does a provider overcome this? How does a, a patient's family overcome this? And how do us uh, in the community who are advocates for this issue overcome this? Well, I get I get into the uh, some serious detail about this really central question in the book, and it's a fundamental one. So I'm glad it was asked, and it really does come down to be able to make the case that there really isn't a neutral space for asking or answering these questions. Um, there's no view from nowhere. There's no place from which we can kind of do a math problem or a proof and then come out with the answer. They always have inherent values that attach to even what we mean by the term autonomy, right? Or how we, to what scale of goods do we appeal when we resolve a conflict of autonomy between the autonomy of the patient and the autonomy of the, of the uh, physician, as we've talked about before. But here, I think it's super important to say that, um, it's not just gradations of autonomy, like, or gradations of value. You know, if we say the kinds of lives that matter are those that are autonomous, that is a deeply value-laden statement that is no different in kind from saying the kinds of lives that values, the kinds of lives that matter are those that are made in the image and likeness of God. There's really no difference in the kinds of statements that are being offered there. They're both value-laden statements. And in fact, there's really no reason to discriminate between the kinds of value and say, well, one is acceptable to talk about in the clinic and in a medical context, well, as another one is kind of imposing your view. No, I don't have that, that, that understanding. And lots of people reject the, uh, the understanding, which is autonomy focused. It is absolutely not neutral. And just as lots of people who would, um, you know, reject my Christian anthropology who aren't Christian or have a different kind of anthropology as well. The key is to be able to find a way to engage with each other and have dialogue with each other, acknowledging that we all bring these values to bear, regardless of our theological positions or lack thereof. But there's absolutely no reason to say that one is, you know, neutral and the other has somehow is trying to impose values onto the other. There is no way to do this without it, uh, including substantial uh, questions of value as part of the discussion. Getting into the practical realities of end of life decisions, can you comment? We have a question here about this, um, about advanced medical directives and how they can incorporate many of the principles of ethical healthcare that you've just been outlining uh, with us today. Yeah, that's a very personal, um, very personal area, and so I'm I'm humbled by the question and. 
And I think it, it ultimately needs to be decided, you know, again, given a relational anthropology and in conjunction with what's one's family and community. And um, especially if one is religious, one's religious community as well. But maybe there are just a couple of principles here. One, I think, is just um, to resist any notion that your life, again, is less valuable because of things that you're no longer able to do. Um, there's a, there's a, I'm a, I can no longer use Seinfeld references in my classes because my students aren't old enough to remember the show, but I had all these great ones. And there's one, you know, where Kramer is trying to decide if he, if he wants to have the plug pulled and he just goes through all the things he can do or not do. And it's really funny, but it also shows the absurdity of that. And again, our value does not come from the kinds of things we can do or not do. It comes from the kinds of creatures we are. And then maybe I add a second one here. And again, these are all, there's so much personal here, but maybe it's important to understand that one can aim at one's death, not just actively by requesting physician assisted suicide, but what can aim at it passively as well, or by omission. And, um, you know, it, you know, we, one can say it is time for me to die now. Therefore I will remove X or, or forego Y. And it's of course, totally legit to remove X or forego Y, but it's at least from my perspective, not, uh, not, not aiming at death. Um, if one is saying it is time to die now, therefore it's time to remove this. If one is saying this is burdensome treatment, it's ex extraordinary treatment. That is of course, perfectly legitimate. And again, those should be decisions that are made in consultation um, in very personal ways in the ways I just described. But I, but I would just, sometimes my students especially kind of confuse it and imagine that the only way you can aim at your own death is by action, when in fact you can also aim at your own death by omission as well. A final question that I think is especially topical, what understanding or process do we put in place for a day or time when healthcare needs may overwhelm the resources available. I think we saw this in part during COVID, the height of the pandemic, when there were uh, many examples of healthcare rationing, especially for those who were vulnerable or had other uh, situations. At which time will there be a need to be some kind of rationing uh, system in place? Yeah, so you mentioned my first book, um, which is also my dissertation. Uh, and the title is Too Expensive to Treat? Question <laughs> mark. Um, and the, so I was, I've been really interested in these questions, uh, for some time now. And, um, I think it needs to start with the idea that, um, you know, the pandemic revealed something that was already true. And that's not only our, our, our nature is finite, but our resources are finite as well. And so there's really no way to avoid the fact, um, that, you know, the finite, the, the finite nature of our resources, um, is just something we need to address all the pandemic did was really highlight the fact that this was the case. And as we saw, though, we were deeply unprepared for being able to address this. States and localities and hospitals and hospital systems had just very different ways of, of handling these things. Some of them explicitly invoked ableist understandings. I think it was Alabama that even used the word, the phrase mentally retarded to describe in, in, uh, individuals who would not have the same access. You know, just a horrific example of how things need to change and be updated. But one of the things I found very um, heartening actually during the pandemic was that um, Roger Severino, who head up, headed up the um, Office of Civil Rights at HHS during the pandemic, really came down hard um, on, on um, states and localities that used ableist um, uh, versions of quality of life to decide who got ventilators or who got ICU beds or something like that, saying that this was a fundamental violation 
of our civil rights. And as the um, Health and Human Services Secretary's office of, head of the Office of Civil Rights, he was able to use the power they had for those that took federal money to say, uh-uh, you're not going to do this if you want federal, if you're, if you're getting federal money. And thank God he did. And, and thank God that that discussion took place. And maybe we can continue to have those discussions over time to say, listen, it's just a reality, both on the micro level and the macro level, that we have limited resources and we have to make tough decisions about how to use those resources. But let's never, ever, ever make them on the basis of saying somebody who's um, disabled has a different value or quality of life as somebody who's differently abled. And, and then again, quality adjusted life years <laughs> looms large here. And I think, I think that it really has started to infect our, our debates about how to use, um, uh, you know, a finite resources. And so let's drop for sure the quality part of the quality adjusted life years, and maybe also drop the life years as well, because that also discriminates against those who are in the older part of their lives. And, and think harder about how to, you know, what it means to justly allocate, um, you know, limited resources. And again, I wrote a whole book about that too. Thank you, Charlie. I think that was a fitting a conclusion to our webinar today. We are just thrilled to have you here and grateful for all the work that you do as a leading bioethicist in this field, promoting ethical healthcare. I know many of our members follow your work. I do. And this will be a great way to broaden the dialogue with those uh, in our coalition, but also those who may be questioning um, the, le the legalization of assisted suicide. I think you would be a great resource for them. And so we look forward to sharing this. Uh, this will be available on our website, ethicalcaremn.org slash webinars, where all of our webinars are listed. You can learn more about the organization there. And also I said in the beginning, if you're on this webinar call, and you are not currently a partner of Ethical Care Minnesota, you can join easily at ethicalcaremn.org. There's a nice slide right there. You can join with our other partners and individual members and faith communities. And uh, with that, uh, we thank everyone for joining us today. We thank our special guest, and we look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you very much.